You finally decided to learn how to ice skate, so you ordered the essentials every aspiring ice skater needs. A nice pair of blades, a shiny new helmet, and a good set of knee pads. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping, which you put those rewards towards an essential piece of post-skating recovery, a heating pad. Visit bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding to apply now. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael Pina of SB Nation. Now, Michael, I'm going to utter my favorite, you know, somewhat dangerous phrase, which is you're going to have to indulge me here for a minute, okay? It's been quite a week in Los Angeles. The entire city is grieving in mourning. There are tributes to Kobe Bryant across the entire city. But I'll tell you what, the most moving scene that I saw was at the crash site uh, up in Calabasas. And longtime Open Floor Globe members will know that I used to fly my drone to take pictures, you know, from the air. I just viewed it as... Uh, you know, just the next wave of uh, photography for, uh, you know, an Instagram uh, aspiring influencer like myself. And as I was going to the crash site, I had the strongest sense of deja vu. The exact exit, uh, basically where that crash site is, I had turned off a couple of years ago to go fly my drone in the hills over there, just not not even a couple miles away from uh, just this very random hill uh, in, you know, well outside Los Angeles, about 30 miles. It was just very, very eerie uh, to have that memory because, you know, I'm looking at it as this beautiful place to just kind of get out into uh, uh, nature a little bit, to step away from society. And here is where an NBA legend, an L.A. icon, Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old Gianna, and seven other people lost their lives. But what really hit me even harder than that was speaking to the pastor, Bob, Uh, at Church in the Canyon. And I just want to paint this picture for everyone. I wrote about this for the Washington Post this week, but I'll tell you what, it hit me hard. Pastor Bob and and the church there are going through Sunday school services with the kids on Sunday morning, a quiet morning, just like any other, went directly across the street from the church, up in the hill, within eyesight of the church's front door, the helicopter just falls out of the sky. Uh, They could hear it inside the church. The entire congregation, the kids all go out to the parking lot. It's clear immediately there's a fireball, there's a fire starting. Even before the first responders got there, everyone present realized that there were not going to be any survivors. And within that moment, Pastor Bob led his congregation, 75 people, in prayer in the parking lot. I mean, if that doesn't hit you, I don't know what does. But what happened over the next three days is even more remarkable to me. I think that a lot of fans across Southern California in the first 24 hours especially struggled to cope with this idea of did it really happen? And many of them wanted to go see it for themselves to believe it. And then as time passed, I think many of them just wanted to go to that spot and pay their respects. So we're talking about uh, a random, you know, exurban community well outside of downtown Los Angeles, heading towards Malibu, heading uh, up towards Santa Barbara. That's really famous for being mentioned in a Drake song and being the home of the Kardashians, kind of an exclusive enclave where when you're driving down the freeway, you see the the fancy luxury uh, auto car uh, dealerships just kind of like one after another. Uh, Fans from everywhere started pouring to that location to hold vigils, to bring flowers, bring candles, you know, cry, uh, share Kobe memories. And Pastor Bob realized pretty quickly that uh, 
the fans weren't going to stop coming and it was going to be a big scene. On top of that, you had news crews representing stations from Japan, China, Korea, Mexico, and of course all the LA and national stations here in America descending upon that scene. So I think in the moment of crisis, uh, Pastor Bob realized like, you know, this is, this is going to be something that is going to define our lives for the foreseeable future. So he sets up stands offering free water, free coffee, fruit, refreshments. He opens up uh, the church for anyone who needs to go uh, have a moment of silent reflection or prayer. He counsels people who are, are grieving. Uh, he brings out power strips so that people can charge their cell phones. He allows the media trucks to park their, um, you know, park in front of his parking lot at all hours of the day. And there are some people, frankly, who wanted to sleep on the spot. They didn't want to go home afterwards. And so he, you know, is, is kind of talking to people and letting them know they should go home and get a good night's sleep. Is an unbelievable response to me uh, from the pastor and from that church community. Uh, I can't imagine being in that situation of having a helicopter fly out of the sky. And I think I really took away two lessons, Michael. I mean, first of all, it's the most obvious lesson to brought the preciousness of life, right? If a player with access to uh, an unending supply of resources, money and influence and everything else can lose his life like in just such a, a split second um, manner where, you know, a, a completely random hill uh, in the suburbs like uh, we all better be making the most of every day that we've got. But number two, it's, you know, tragedies are a great character test, right? They they bring your true essence kind of out of you, right? Like how you respond, um, it says a lot about who you are as a person. And I think that you saw the heart, uh, you know, from that church community. You saw the, the clear-eyed desire to help the fellow man. Uh, from Pastor Bob and, and his staff as well. And this is not a silver lining. I mean, this is a horrible tragedy with loss of life, but I do think it's a reminder that, um, you know, when you hit tough times, ask yourself who you are, ask yourself what you're about. That's the best way to get through it. Yeah, that that is all very beautiful. And your story was beautiful. And I'm not a, I'm not a religious person, but I do feel like in times where things are so unexplainable that's where religion really comes into play and is very useful and helpful for people and so it was just it, it is as you said it's not <clears throat> a silver lining but uh it is always wonderful to see that there are good people in the world with good intentions uh so that was that was just wonderful yeah and i mean talking to him really hit me hard he made that same point you just made michael he said look the best way to view an unexplainable tragedy like this, and I'm not uh, particularly religious myself, but he said, look at it this way. Um, we're like kids looking through a fence that has a little hole in it, watching the baseball game, right? So we're seeing a sliver of God's play. We're not seeing the entire picture. And uh, that resonated with me, you know, because uh, this is just something that no one can really process, you know? You can't really make sense of a senseless tragedy but you know for him and he said he was going to be telling his uh, his church this on sunday like the belief is the most important factor and i think he was also particularly moved that kobe Bryant had been attending church i think the same morning um and that that was sort of uh 
you know, a small salvation, I think, from from his viewpoint. But just this idea that if you do have the belief, if you have the trust that eventually you're going to be able to understand the whole plan, that will help carry you through, too. And I think that's powerful. And I could tell just, you know, based on the orderliness of the scene, based on uh, the help that was being provided to people that definitely were in need, the signs of open grief from, you know, people who were still there on Tuesday days later, that these guys were really making a difference. And I just think, you know, they deserve a little bit of love here during a tough time period. But look, there is memorials all across Los Angeles. You know, you go to LAX, they've got the lights in Lakers colors. Uh, You go to the barbershop uh, where I get my haircut, everyone in the barbershop's talking Kobe, Kobe, Kobe all day long. You listen to sports radio, it's fans, you know, calling in basically through tears to share their memories of Kobe Bryant, why he inspired them. You go to the Lakers practice facility, there is just wall after wall after wall uh, where they've set up the ability for fans to write messages with Sharpies uh, to say thanks to Kobe. People are bringing flowers, uh, jerseys, and everything else. And on top of all that, Michael, I have never in my life seen something like LA Live, right next to Staples Center, downtown LA, the shrine that has uh, been pulled together there. It is mind blowing. You know, it's probably, I would say, 60 feet long in one place by five feet deep of flowers, candles, uh, handwritten notes, hand, hand painted artwork. Uh, the list goes on. Fans are you know, shooting baskets there, yelling out Kobe at all hours of the night. I went there on Tuesday night. There's no game at Staples Center. And the parking lot where I always park for the games is full because that many people <laughs> have come uh, to pay their respects to Kobe. And we're talking about thousands of people. Uh, and it was surreal. I, I sent video and, and pictures of the scene to my mother. And she said, Princess Die, period. You know, that was her response. And, and that's like the only, you know, kind of comparison point she could come up with of seeing this kind of love on that massive of a scale. And I do think it's a little bit fitting because people call the Staples Center like the, the house that Kobe built, you know, because it was uh, mm-hmm. open right around 2000, you know, right when they were first winning their titles and everything. And he had just held court there in front of celebrities and everybody else for almost two decades. So it's just kind of fitting that that, and that has now become like the epicenter for the grief. But I'm telling you, man, like if anyone's listening to this in L.A., I don't care if you were a Kobe fan. I don't care if you were a Lakers fan, Clippers fan. I don't care if you don't like basketball. And if you don't like basketball, I have no idea why you're listening to this. But um, (laughs) go down and see it. It will move you. It gave me goosebumps from my toes up to my head. Uh, It made me lightheaded. I mean, it was is really, really something. And it just goes to show you that the impact that he had in this city. And also, you know, look, Gianna too. I mean, there are so many tributes to her. I think that... Her loss is hitting people really, really, really hard. And if you can get the chance to go see that memorial, I really recommend doing it. And if you can't get the chance, just realize that like this is all on a different level. Like the size and scope of this here locally is unlike anything I've seen and probably anything I ever will see. Yeah, that was also well said. I mean, just looking at your videos and other videos I've seen across social media of the memorial, it looks just, it's totally unprecedented. And, uh, you know, something that I've been thinking about a lot over the past few days and trying to wrap my head around this is just how difficult it is to contextualize this this tragedy. Um, And context is kind of what grounds us to reality in a lot of ways. So, when you don't have the context and you don't have the precedent, you know, Princess Di is 
uh, is a good comparison, but I just don't know if there's anything quite. Uh, I don't. I don't want to compare. Get into comparing tragedies, but this is just a very powerful, unique situation, and it's touched so many people's lives. And you just look across. Even like I was at Barclays Center last night, and I'm walking to the arena, and there's this giant. Uh, uh, basically a television screen that usually plays advertisements uh, on the front facade of, of Barclays Center. And it was still, and it was just a picture of Kobe with 824 RIP. Uh, it was like people were standing outside it taking pictures. I, I myself walked up, took a picture. It was just so, it's so powerful. And even in watching games across the league, uh, you know, in the pregame sessions, there would be uh, you know, those flyovers of the city and there would be a building that, you know, changed the colors of it to purple and gold to to celebrate Kobe and to to honor him. It's just it's nationwide. It's international. It's uh, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, I mean, the Moda Center in Portland changed their colors. The Empire State Building changed their colors. Their uh, building in Chicago changed their colors. You know, one other little tribute here locally that really hit me, Michael, the city buses often will say go Lakers on their marquees on the front, especially mm-hmm. downtown. And it always made me laugh because I don't think I've ever seen them say go Clippers, right? It basically only says go Lakers <laughs> over the years. And it just always made me chuckle a little bit because it just, you know, it's like, what's the city pride really about, right? It's it's Laker pride. And as I was driving down to that downtown memorial on Tuesday night, the marquees on the city buses said RIP Kobe, right? It's like, if that doesn't tell you how ingrained this guy is, in the functioning of the city. I don't know what else does. And um, so, you know, it's just been a mentally exhausting couple of days out here and just a very intense grief session. And I think sort of the big takeaway from this is that it's going to go on for a while, right? I mean, this isn't going to be ending anytime soon. Now, Michael, I think you made a comment to me maybe earlier this week as you were trying to look for some context and you were saying, this could be the biggest story that we ever cover as NBA writers. I think you were meaning you and I specifically, but maybe just you know NBA reporters in general. Um, I'm imagining you've thought on that a little bit here the last couple of days since you said that. What made you say that? And uh, you know, are are you still at that point? Uh, what made me say that was, I guess, my own personal. I, I think this is a very personal thing for a lot of people, but my own personal reaction and just how emotional that I was over the past few days and have been and just the, the 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 fog that my head has been in I just I haven't been able to you know every morning I wake up and I usually have a game DVR'd from the night before and I wake up and I watch it and I take as as copious notes as I possibly can and this whole week it's just that all felt like a completely futile exercise like I would wake up as normal put the put a game on and I just couldn't like I'm looking back at my at my notebook right now, and it's like, uh, you know, a couple sentences for each quarter, and they're not even legible. Like, and I think just beyond myself, like a lot of people who uh, were alive and actively covering the NBA, uh, or can remember back in '92 when Magic Johnson was diagnosed with HIV. That's kind of the big basketball story that that is most comparable in terms of just shock and uh, transcendence. And this is obviously a, 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 not to make light of that with magic, but this is obviously a more tragic scenario. 
And I just don't know how anything could be more powerful and how anything could uh, draw so many memories out of so many people. And I, I just can't even fathom a story that is larger than this one. Can you? I mean, I don't want to fathom it. I can tell you that much. I mean, there's so many things that come together from the horrific way, from Gianna's inclusion, from the fact that he's still so young, from the fact that he grew up in L.A. since the age of 17, always being in the public eye, Um, the fact that he played for a franchise for 20 years, and so he's got all, you know, two decades worth of loyalty built up, the fact that he's going to be regarded by basically anyone as a top 10 or 15 player in NBA history. So, you know, the the size and scope of his skill level. Um, No, man, it's a lot. Like I've been struggling for comparison points too. like Tupac, you know, he's a kind of a guy where like he lived on for decades after his death and it it took on this mythic quality. And I think that's, what's going to happen with Kobe and Gianna too, frankly. Uh, You know, one thing I've been doing here, trying to like process this grief is like I've been letting my mind wander and like building up Gianna as like the greatest WNBA player in history right like in my mind she's already like a five-time WNBA MVP and she's won three titles and we're comparing her to Cheryl Swoops like that's kind of where my mind's gone with this and I think you know grief and and tragedy does weird things to you and maybe that's just one coping mechanism what we are seeing though Michael is steps being taken um, by you know central figures here to kind of, you know, for lack of a better phrase, you know, move the conversation forward, right? Take the next step. And so we actually saw public statements from Vanessa Bryant, uh, Kobe's wife, uh, Jeannie Buss, uh, Lakers owner, and then the Lakers themselves. And it had been a real blackout period from a media standpoint from all the major figures here from basically Sunday when the news broke until... Uh, Wednesday or Thursday as they started to open things up. I'm just going to read their statements. I think it's important. Uh, Vanessa wrote, My girls and I want to thank the millions of people who've shown support and love during this horrific time. Thank you for all the prayers. We definitely need them. We are completely devastated by the sudden loss of my adoring husband, Kobe, the amazing father of our children, and my beautiful, sweet Gianna, a loving, thoughtful, and wonderful daughter, and amazing sister to Natalia, Bianca, and Capri. We are also devastated for the families who lost their loved ones on Sunday, and we share in their grief intimately. There aren't enough words to describe our pain right now. I take comfort in knowing that Kobe and Gigi both knew that they were so deeply loved. We are so incredibly blessed to have them in our lives. I wish they were here with us forever. They were our beautiful blessings taken from us too soon. I'm not sure what our lives hold beyond today, and it's impossible to imagine life without them. But we wake up each day trying to keep pushing because Kobe and our baby Gigi are shining on us to light the way. Our love for them is endless, and that's to say, immeasurable. I just wish I could hug them, kiss them, and bless them. Have them here with us forever. I mean, absolutely beautiful statement by her. Uh, Jeannie Buss writes, Kobe, I don't know how to express what you mean to me, my family, and the LA Lakers. My father loved you like a son, which makes us family. When you invited me to lunch shortly after my father passed away, I was struggling to find motivation and purpose. Kobe, you brought Gianna with you to spend some time with me. You explained that you wanted to show her that women can be leaders in the NBA just like the men. At first, it seemed like an action of a devoted father setting an example for his daughter, but in actuality, and I'm positively sure you knew exactly what you were doing, what you did was give me the inspiration and strength I was searching for. I reflect on that day often, and it makes me smile, and it makes me strong. 
I call on that memory whenever I feel down and need a bit of courage. For everything you did on the court that filled me with so much joy and love, for all the lives you changed through basketball, it was that day with Gigi that reignited my drive and determination. And then she went on to tell the family, you know, sorry for their loss. So beautiful memories from both of them. The Lakers issued a, you know, a brief statement. They just said, we are devastated and have been forever changed by the sudden loss of Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna. We send our love to Vanessa, the Bryant family, and to the families of the other passengers. Words cannot express what Kobe means to the LA Lakers, our fans, and our city. More than a basketball player, he was a beloved father, husband, and teammate. Their love and light will remain in our hearts forever. And Michael, the Lakers did open their doors on Wednesday. More than 100 media members showed up. The players did not address the media, but Frank Vogel did. And the obvious question was, you know, are you guys going to do this for Kobe? Are you going to devote this season to his memory? And I thought his answer was excellent. I think it was prepared, obviously, with the help of, um, uh, I'm sure, of public relations staffers and, and maybe even help from the grief counselors. Who knows? But he basically said, look, we want to honor Kobe's memory with our play. But he did just kind of sidestep and basically, you know, make it clear that they weren't trying to devote this season to Kobe or like somehow a title was going to kind of be for Kobe. I think that's right, Michael, because we're talking about nine human lives here, right? And as you're describing watching the games, I mean, the wins and losses here are so secondary, right? Um, I mean, if you gave anyone in LA the opportunity to trade the 2020 title for an undo button to take that helicopter crash away, I mean, come on, it's, it's not a competition. It's not even close, right? So I think it's important that people tread carefully on that. And it's going to happen. The deeper the Lakers go into the playoffs, the more success they have this season, the more people are going to rally around this narrative of do it for Kobe, do it for Kobe. And I just think it's very important, like Frank Vogel said, honor his memory, but don't think that somehow winning on the basketball court is going to make this thing right. No, I mean, it it almost would cheapen the tragedy in a way. I don't think that... Anything that happens uh, for the rest of the season uh, is it even really matters, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, uh, it's just like a crater hit the NBA, and there's a cloud uh, of dust hanging overhead, and uh, there's really, I, I, who knows when the dust clears. It won't be for a very long time. I mean, the, the I know we're going to talk about this later on, maybe just pivot there right now, but like with the trade deadline up ahead like I, I don't understand how like business can carry on as usual I know that everyone is everyone's a professional and everyone has a job to do and I respect that but it's like how do you can you imagine calling Rob Palinka and making a, a, a like offering a trade package for Kyle Kuzma like I, I just I, I can't even fathom what the phone calls that are business like and have to do with business operations like uh, could you imagine calling Mitch Kupchak with a trade offer like I just it's it's uh it's all unfathomable to me and that might just be me personally I can't really speak to anyone else or how they view with this and how they're coping with this but from my perspective it's just it's so beyond like it's just it's it's almost beyond appropriate in my opinion it's a great point. I mean, Kobe hangs over not only the Lakers' immediate future, right? I mean, they have to play a game on Friday. They're trying to get themselves ready for that. And then they've got to play games after that and, and you know, ultimately participate in a playoff push and try to win the title. It hangs over the whole league. I mean, the trade deadline is the most immediate thing because it's coming up here on February 6th. And this is, you know, that push. I mean, this is when all those calls get made and business has to go on. You know, I, 
I would tend to believe that, you know, even people who were directly impacted by Kobe, uh, like a guy like Rob Palinka, would have to do his absolute best to just treat it as business like usual, just like everybody else in the league. Um, you know, certainly I'm, I'm sure he's just being overwhelmed and flooded with calls of support from his fellow colleagues who would, you know, never wish on that on anyone in a million years. Um, but it's going to be a very difficult time here in the next seven days. The other thing that my mind went to was All-Star Weekend, Michael, because that's supposed to be this joyous celebration. It's supposed to be, uh, you know, the dunk contest is so fun. The, the Rising Stars game is so fun. Uh, All-Star game itself can be, uh, you know, a little bit uh, lazy at times, let's be honest. But uh, there <laughs> fun. are moments. It's fun. <laughs> no, but there's moments where it's fun. And the media scrums, to me, are one of the things I look forward to more than anything because, you just have hundreds of people jockeying for, you know, to ask just sometimes silly questions to these players. It's just a great scene. And I think there's it's going to feel like a funeral or like a wake, uh, you know, when we get to Chicago. It's just not going to feel right. I think the only potential saving grace here is, you know, we're talking on Thursday, so the All-Star Reserves are going to be announced later tonight. Um, there's going to be a lot of first-time All-Stars this year, you know, in both conferences. Um, there already have been a couple, you know, Luca, Trey, Pascal, all selected as starters, that new blood could really help here. Because I think when guys get to the all-star game for the first time, they have the wide eyes. They're so excited by the attention. They're not kind of cynical and, and overwhelmed by it yet. They just eat up that moment. And I think it's important that like there's going to be a, a pretty big wave of new blood to kind of help that event. Uh, because I, I do think it's going to be uh, you know pretty strange. And same thing goes for the playoffs too. You know I think it's going to be just a different feel uh, for the the rest of this, this season. And, you know, we'll see, you know, ultimately like the finals, you know, if the finals are head, held here in LA, whether it's the Lakers or the Clippers, I mean, the Kobe's going to be the lead story, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, just thinking about, you know, I, when I think about All-Star Weekend, I can't help but think about Kobe at All-Star Weekend. And, you know, Dwight Howard is participating in the slam dunk contest this year. And I believe there was there was talk like a few weeks ago when news broke that he was going to participate about how he would he wanted to involve Kobe in it. And that's just it's totally just heart shattering to think about. And uh, one of my favorite all star moments, I mean, I'm a huge I love the slam dunk contest, period. Like, I don't care how terrible it, it's been over the years there's been some nadir moments but i've 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 uh never jumped off the bandwagon personally and i recently went back and i watched uh kobe uh when he won uh uh as a i believe he was a rookie and <clears throat> i recommend everyone go back and watch that it is uh not for the dunks at all but just watching young kobe that was his real in, in my opinion breaking out this is real breakout moment as just a character in the NBA an important figure and uh you know what I would love to see is just and would probably make me cry on the spot is if everyone who participates does his famous between the legs dunk as their first dunk because I'm pretty sure everyone except maybe Dwight Dwight probably can't do it but everyone else who is participating uh can certainly do it easily and uh it oh, would just man. be a beautiful touching honor if that I, happened I didn't even think about that there's going to be Kobe tributes in the dunk contest I mean that's a phenomenal idea um, people should go back and watch the 81-point game. I did that this week for a story, kind of breaking down, uh, you know, the different layers of his scoring game and just, you know, his mind, his footwork, 
uh, you know, his technique, uh, his his turnaround jumper. I mean, all that stuff. I did that for a post for the, the Washington Post. Um, I really enjoyed watching the clip of that. You know, back when I f- first watched that game, you know, when it happened, I was so mad, Michael, because I was thinking, oh, my God, this guy who's always wanted to be like Jordan just got 81 now Mike's going to have to unretire so he can score 82. <laughs> like what a hassle for Mike, you know? And, uh, I mean, you know, as, as being like a true MJ stand, like that one really got me. And I was like kind of furious about it at the time. And, uh, you know, I was always worried, oh, this is going to give him an argument in the, uh, you know, the goat conversation that Mike can't, uh, can't counter. Um, but when you go back and watch the game, he just gets so hot in the second half. He's just, you know, pulling up from deep and it doesn't matter how much help they send at him. He's just unstoppable. It's a really, really good rewatch. Just like you're saying with the dunk contest. You decided it was time to upgrade your outdoor deck. So you got all the essentials to do it. You ordered a power washer, a set of patio chairs and a shiny new grill. And you used your Bank of America Cash Rewards credit card, choosing to earn 3% cash back on online shopping and up to 5.25% as a preferred rewards member, which you put towards your most essential deck addition, a bird feeder. Apply for yours at bankofamerica.com slash more rewarding. Copyright 2020, Bank of America Corporation. Now, Michael, I was going on and on there about the scene here in California, but I think that you've made the point. This is a global grieving process, right? This is a national grieving process here in the country. And I know you've been around a couple of teams here this week. Uh, you've, you've been to some games. Uh, so I'm curious, like I've been in my own little hole over here, just kind of doing me. And I'm, I'm curious, what's it been like for you? And can you paint me some pictures from these last couple of days as the NBA copes with the loss of Kobe Bryant? Yeah, sure. I mean, as you said, as I said earlier, I think that, uh, like, personally, I've been since Sunday, like I said on the last episode, I did not attend the uh, Knicks-Nets game. And then there really weren't any games in New York until last night, Wednesday night. Uh, the Well, the Knicks played the Grizzlies. I did not attend that game. I went to the Nets Uh, Pistons game and you know there were a lot of questions still primarily in the pregame pressers with both coaches about Kobe how the teams were coping um, what the response was from players over the past few days Uh, and you know Kenny Atkinson head coach of the Brooklyn Nets basically talked about how they practiced the the day before and he thought it was just a therapeutic experience to get back into a routine with the guys, you know, play basketball, let their heads clear a little bit. Uh, he said that Kyrie Irving was uh, more quiet than, than normal, but he participated. And then he also played in last night's game, as a lot of people saw it was nationally televised on ESPN, and he was fighting back tears in the postgame interview. Um, you know, uh, Dwayne Casey talked about how, you know, the, the Pistons were using a life coach with some of the players to deal with uh, uh, their response, their personal uh, outlook on the situation. And uh, guys were opening up about their own relationships with Kobe that Dwayne Casey never knew. Like, you know, Blake Griffin, obviously Blake was a player on the Clippers uh, when Kobe was still active with the Lakers and they were both injured at the same time at one point and rehabbing at the same facility and that's where they bonded and so it's just it's it's there's a lot of people who have direct connections that you wouldn't that you know go beyond the surface level and so this just impacts everyone on a uh, uh, such a in a, such a deep meaningful way 
Um, you know, it, the, I would say the scene just, you know, in the locker rooms and on the floor, I would say it was pretty normal. Uh, you know, I don't know what was going on in everybody else's head, but like, I think the I was in the visitors' locker room with the Pistons, and you know, it was guys were cracking jokes, guys were playing music, guys were taking care of the t- their their extra tickets for for family members and friends, and it was it was pretty business as usual. Um, the Nets did have a tribute for Kobe and Gigi. And well, can the, I ask you about that? I saw the pictures. I mean, what was that like seeing that? And describe it for people in detail. Yeah, sure. So uh, I believe it was in December. Kobe and Gigi were at a Nets Hawks game because Trey Young is was Gigi's favorite player, and they sat courtside. And so what the Nets did to honor them was they didn't let anybody sit in those seats, and they they were just empty for the entire game. And before the game began, they shine they shone a spotlight on the seats. Um, and I was actually at the game. Uh, my wife is from Michigan, and she comes to the Pistons games every year. Uh, whenever they're in town. So she bought God uh, bless her, by the way. I mean, that's no small sidebar. (laughs) God bless your wife and her heart. I mean, unbelievable, but continue. I know, I know. She can't name a player on the team, but she comes. Um, And so I actually, her seats are, her seat was a lot better than where they sit the media. So usually I'll, I'll sit next to her because truth be told, Barclay Center is not selling out games at the moment. Uh, so, you know, I'll just sneak down uh, and sit next to her. So we took everything in the pregame ceremony. The Nets were uh, celebrating the Chinese Lunar New Year at the game. So there was a string orchestra and they were uh, young Chinese children. Um, and the uh, lead, I guess, violinist, I want to say, um, was wearing a Kobe jersey. And she was, couldn't have been older than eight years old. And so it was just, it was very emotional, the whole thing. And uh, it was a beautiful thing to take part in. And, you know, again, just going back to all the games that I've tried to watch over the past few days, the pregame ceremonies. I mean, Philadelphia was also just very, very powerful. Um, Obviously, where Kobe's from and where he went to high school. Uh, it, it's just it's it is it's it's a thing that's just impacted everyone across the league in every city, every fan base. Whether or not you liked Kobe or didn't like Kobe, it, it doesn't matter. It's it's just a universal thing that everyone's kind of taking in together. And that's very well said. I mean, look no further than the jersey numbers, right? Guys changing away from number eight or number twenty-four, or some guys wearing eight or twenty-four for one game in the first game back on the court. Um, I always thought the jersey number was like one of the most personal aspects of sports at every level. I mean, even going down to like micro soccer and, you know, peewee baseball and everything else, like the jersey number matters to basically everyone who puts one on, right? And for professional established athletes to be like, I can't wear this number anymore, right? On the drop of a hat. And for the NBA to be wise enough to say, look, if you want to change your number, we're going to waive all the rules. Go ahead and change it. You know, we'll make it happen. I mean, that that's just one more layer to, I think, the, the tributes that you're seeing uh, from the basketball community. You know, speaking of those tributes, Michael, I do not want uh, people to gloss over or to forget about Shaquille O'Neal and Jerry West on TNT uh, on, I believe it was Tuesday night. Uh, you know, the, the Lakers and Clippers game was postponed at Staples Center, so they took the court in L.A., and it was an absolutely riveting hour Um to me, I have never 
been the world's biggest Shaquille O'Neal fan. I thought some of the rap stuff and Kazam and all that was just like, you know, when it was happening, it was a little bit corny. He's a big guy. I didn't play center. So it was like kind of harder to relate to him. Obviously, um, you know, our, our body types are probably a little bit different. So it's like not, not a real natural connection there. Um, and yet I thought that was the highlight of his entire career for me. And, you know, I've interviewed him uh, at certain times. I've probably even aggravated him with my questions at certain times. I have, uh, you know, he, he gave me some absolute heaters about Kevin Durant saying that KD couldn't even talk to him because he hadn't won a title yet. And that kind of made some waves when he told me that a few years ago. Um, I, again, I'm not like super close with Shaq, but, uh, you know, I've been watching him play for 20 something years and I've interacted with him for multiple stories along the way. I guess that's my point. And I've never felt more personally drawn to him than I did watching him on TV on Tuesday night. I think he has received justified criticism for like the quality of his communication abilities on that show. I definitely think he's gotten better these last couple of years. Um, and he's incredibly entertaining. I'm not sure he's always the, the world's best communicator. On that night, it was a grand slam. I mean, the, the notes that he hit were so important. I mean, first of all, I think people know the visual of just him crying in public and, you know, a big guy being open with his emotions. I think that's very powerful, very important. But beyond that, listen to his words. When Shaq is saying, I'm so caught up in my day-to-day -day life of, of working that I, I'm forgetting about my priorities. I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not making the right amount of time to, to check in with Kobe. And, and he said they hadn't really spoken since Kobe's 60-point game. You could tell that that's part of the reason why he was hurting so badly. I mean, he called it like a, a triple stabbing to the chest, right? And that's a valuable message that every single person can learn from. And certainly it's one that I've taken to heart. You know, it's like we all get so wrapped up in our day-to-day our -day lives of working. So many of us, I think, are probably feeling overworked, whether they're students or uh, professionals. And for Shaq to be out there out front saying like, look, let's remember the priorities. I thought that was really big. But I think even bigger than that was his closing message where he's basically saying, you know, look, Kobe was like my younger brother. I have a real younger brother. We beef all the time in real life and Kobe and I beefed, right? And that was just, you know, a brotherly relationship. And then, you know, Shaq said something along the lines of, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are going to talk about, you know, like Kobe versus Shaq or like this longstanding feud or everything else. And he's like, look, we need to put that to bed. That's not how it was. This was a typical brotherly relationship. I care about him. He cared about me. We were able to have mutual respect. I thought that was just a monster, monster statement from Shaquille O'Neal because it's something that has dominated headlines for 15 years. It obviously led to their divorce. I mean, the, the tension in their relationship was very real. It forced Shaquille to be traded to Miami. It changed the entire narrative of his career, right? It changed Kobe's entire narrative. And for him to show public forgiveness uh, was just huge. And for him to let everybody know, like, you know, just like behind the curtain into their relationship in that moment was so powerful. I know there's so many Kobe fans out there, so many Lakers fans, so many Shaq fans out there that needed to hear those words. And man, I was just blown away uh, that he was able to say all th those things. And, you know, I just went on for like three minutes there. I didn't even get to Jerry West and he was crazy good too. No, I, I mean, that hour was I, maybe the best and most important hour of television that I'll ever see. I mean, it started just with, I couldn't believe, first of all, 
looking at it, how uh, visually emotional it was for them to be sitting at center court at Staples Center. I was not expecting I was not expecting that from the jump. So already I'm very emotional. And then for Shaq to kick it off, he basically just opened a vein and he was as honest as he's ever been. He was as authentic as he's ever been. And as you said, to see this guy cry on national television and not care and to uh, speak about uh, his regret of not getting to laugh at Kobe's Hall of Fame ceremony and seemingly rectify a relationship that, you know, I was surprised to hear him say that they had not talked since the 60-point game. Like, that was not recently. That was a few years ago. So, as you said, I think that that certainly added to his his own individual pain. He brought up the loss of his sister, his younger sister, the loss of uh, a parent. Um, so it was very emotional. Uh, going on to Jerry West really quick, I, like I was stunned the whole time. And I think everyone watching was stunned. Uh, hearing that man... Uh, be as open as he was, say things that he's never said before, uh, talk about, you know, I, I just imagine, I might be wrong and naive about this, but I imagine that when you get to be as old as Jerry West is, that your perspective about death changes a little bit because you've seen it more in your life and everyone, a lot of people who you love and a lot of your friends have passed on. And for him to be that emotional and say that he would never get over this, and say it on national television as he did, uh, bawling his eyes out for half an hour. It was it was something I will never ever ever forget. No, Jerry West. I mean, he had so many different notes. I mean, telling the story about counseling Kobe not to go play for Do- Donald Sterling. My other favorite story from Jerry West was during his courtship of Shaquille O'Neal. He like made a point to tell Shaq, like, hey, just FYI, we just got the 17-year-old kid. He's going to be the best player in the NBA one day. So just like keep that in the back of your mind. I thought that was such a great <laughs> a great touch because we know how it ended, right? I mean, obviously, the, the highs of the three titles, but like, you know, ultimately, Shaq had to kind of cede LA to Kobe, which I'm sure when Shaq signed with the Lakers in the first place, he never imagined ceding the city to anybody, right? Um I thought that was a great detail. Jerry West describing basically the father-son-like relationship they had as Kobe was sort of searching for mentorship in his career. Um, I mean, it just hit really, really hard. Uh, You know, Jerry West, and the other thing that struck me, the love that Jerry West received from the other people on stage. You know, Shaq just basically pouring his heart out and saying, thank you for being you. Charles Barkley, you know, how often do we ever hear Barkley just like, openly you know basically like bowing to somebody and and that's exactly what he was doing you know guys like Dwayne Wade Reggie Miller Ernie I mean everybody on that stage was just expressing just this deep deep respect to West not only because of his role as an NBA player and executive and just figure and the logo and everything that goes with that but also just with his openness and if you haven't seen the Tuesday night go track down the video. I mean, I'm telling you, like, I'm, I know a lot of people told me that it was hard for them to watch at the time. Uh, they just weren't quite ready for it. Um, go back and watch it if you haven't seen it. I thought it was so cathartic for for everyone who participated, I would assume. And then also just something like that, I feel like needed to happen for people who 
have been either in denial or trying to close themselves off from reality and staying, as you said earlier, in a bubble, uh, in a mental space of, you know, trying to cope with this thing, but not knowing how others are dealing with it. So for them to get on national television and share stories and show appreciation, I mean, I thought Dwayne Wade, Dwayne Wade blew me away as well. I thought he was tremendous talking about when he first met Kobe, his respect level for Kobe, the story with Tim Grover and the push-up challenge (laughs) where, you know, Kobe, after they undergo this workout before, uh, uh, while they were both at Team USA, basically saying, you never told me that he was like me um, to Tim. And so I thought that was really powerful. And like, you know you what know, I loved about D- Dwayne Wade's stories is that in Dwayne Wade's stories, Dwayne Wade was the hero of every story. <laughs> like, I don't know if he, if, he, <laughs> if he meant to do that, but like he was telling that one story about how he was like a young player and he stole the ball from Kobe Bryant. And like, that was the story that he had like stolen the ball. And it's like, all right, Dwayne, come on. Like, let's, but I think, you know, behind... I'm being a little bit facetious here and just trying to find a little bit of humor in it. But I think what he was articulating well was this idea that the people who came up after Kobe Bryant had him on a pedestal, right? He was he was the guy for all the perimeter players, the guards, everybody who wanted to be a scorer. Um, he was that generation's Michael Jordan. Even for someone like Dwayne Wade, who's pretty close to a contemporary, not that much younger, the idea that he could share the co- court with Kobe and the idea that he could steal the ball from Kobe and the idea that he could have a moment of success from Kobe meant everything to him. And then as he pointed out, like Kobe probably just doesn't even remember that play because that's just like another moment of Kobe's life no. of, of, of a 20-year of a career with five titles, right? Um, so I loved Dwayne Wade's perspective and Reggie Miller's too. I mean, talking about how he had been brought in by Arn Tellum to sort of provide uh, mentorship for a young Kobe Bryant and just how competitive that guy was at a young age and and uh, how difficult he was for the Pacers to handle in the finals and everything else. I mean, there was just, you know, you're right. Everybody on stage offered something. But re- real quick, like the, with the Reggie Miller thing, towards the end, he spoke about how contentious their relationship was. And uh, so I, I didn't, you know, I, I assumed that everyone who played against Reggie Miller just hated him. But I went back and I, I yesterday I googled you know Kobe Reggie Miller fight and did you know that they got in a brawl like at a, at the end of a game and it must have been it was pre Malice in the Palace must have been like two thousand two two thousand one two thousand three that area that 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 period and uh, it was at the very end of a of a game and uh, like Isaiah Thomas was the coach of the Pacers and he waves at Phil Jackson, you know, the, the obligatory wave at, after the final buzzer. And he starts walking towards the locker room and then he turns around and he sees that Kobe and Richie Miller are at the scorer's table, like throwing bows. <laughs> it's like, I, I had never, I don't remember that story. Maybe I'm too young to uh, even recall it. So that was, so I vaguely remember it. Like no punches connected, right? Wasn't it a lot of just like a lot of air, like guys were just throwing. Yeah, it was an NBA Fight. Yeah, I think I remember it almost being like the most stereotypical like self-parody NBA fight where there was just like arms being f- like flying every direction, but no one connecting. Uh, well, you know, if people are going to go back and look at the dunk contest and they're going to go back and look at 81, they might as well go back and look at Kobe and Reggie, uh, <laughs> you know, doing a, a shadow boxing for the ages. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying. When Eldon Kidd, a father of five running rafting tours through Mexico, 
found two Guatemalan girls stowed away in the back of his tour van one night, it changed his life forever. They pleaded with me, can you bring us to the border? I agreed. And I thought, can I do this again somehow? From the team behind American Skyjacker comes an epic new crime series, American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous and illegal business. You have to be prepared for the worst. The unbelievable tale of a legendary coyote named Eldon Kidd. American Coyote. Listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Now, Michael, you mentioned to me earlier this week that you did something that I believe a lot of people have done around the world. You tried to go buy Kobe sneakers, didn't you? And you found that they were sold out. Is that right? Uh, Well, sold out from uh, Nike, uh, which was very disappointing. I would have loved to buy them directly from from there but i had to uh it was then like a a pivot to the secondary market which you know the price is just like it's it's a pretty depressing thing but like on monday the prices for any pair of kobe's basically skyrocketed to like three four five six times what they were 24 hours prior so i uh i did buy a pair um, not going to disclose how much I spent, but, uh, well, which pair I, did you get? You know, we got some sneaker heads in the audience. What'd you buy? Sure. I got the, uh, Kobe AD igloos, wow. which, yeah, they're beautiful. I cannot wait to get them in the mail and I'm going to wear them, uh, to the next game whenever, uh, whenever they get in, hopefully that'll be soon. Um, but I was just like, I mean, my relationship with sneakers has always been pretty intense and I realize like I didn't have a pair of Kobe's and part of that is again from something I disclosed earlier which is like I never really (laughs) liked Kobe all that much I respected him but not to the point where I was going to buy his sneakers and uh when I was very little I had the uh the crazy eights you remember those oh yeah yeah um the, from Adidas back when I think they were released in like 97 or something like that. So I had the crazy, my parents were nice enough to buy me uh, the crazy eights and the every single, basically every single Allen Iverson shoe from Reebok back in the day. Those were like the two things that I, I had to have. Um, so yeah, I bought a, a new pair of uh, AD Igloos and I am very excited about them. And I, I don't, I hope everyone uh, can get them at an affordable price is what I'll just say about that. <laughs> no, I hear you. I mean, the gouging stuff is pretty uh, its pretty disturbing. It says a lot about our society. Uh, we should probably just focus on the positive aspect of that, which is we mentioned the jerseys and the love for, for his jersey numbers before. It's the same deal with the shoes. I was talking to my buddy Jordan, who played professionally in Italy and Japan and some other places, and he said everywhere he went during his career – um, and he's basically our age. I think he's like 30, a little bit younger than me. I- I'm getting up there. But um, he said <laughs> everywhere he went, the Kobe's were the sneakers that the fellow players on those teams wanted to have. And they were the, the sneakers that the fans wanted to have. So we have this like cult of Jordans here in, in America. And, and it's a real deal, no question. But I think for international basketball communities, especially you know younger people, it was all about the Kobe's. He was so popular in China, right? He was so popular in Italy, obviously, because of his connections um, to that country when he was younger. 
And, you know, Nike spread the Kobe Mamba mentality across the world. And I think that his basic message is like, believe in yourself and don't let anyone tell you what you can't do, right? I think that is a global message and it absolutely inspires people in any country. And I've heard from, you know, we've heard from Open Floor Globe listeners, probably four or five different continents, you know, about Kobe over the last couple of days. I appreciate all those messages, guys. Um, it just shows that he had that universal connection. And I think that the sneakers are a great avenue to kind of, uh, to see it, you know, and, and to touch it. It's kind of tangible to, to realize that that many people out there wanted a piece of Kobe and they realized like buying a pair of shoes was the easiest way to do it. Yeah, and Ben, one of the coolest things that we've seen around the NBA this week is every single coach in the league wearing Kobe's. Like, how how cool is that? It's like seeing Mike Malone in a pair of Kobe's, seeing Brad Stevens walk up the sideline Man. yelling at his team. Never, like that, it was, never it was in so a million powerful. years, never in a million no. years could we have imagined all these middle-aged white guys wearing Kobe's. Right? <laughs> it's incredible. Like I, I, like that. I don't know who came up with that tribute, but it was. It's amazing and very heartwarming and touching to see all those guys wear those sneakers. It's really cool to see. No doubt. No doubt. Hey, uh, we're going to close out here on a little bit of a darker note, but I think it's something that should be mentioned here as well. I started this podcast off talking about the incredible response from Pastor Bob to the tragedy and just how the tough time revealed his character. And I think, unfortunately, that ugly scene that we saw involving the Knicks at Madison Square Garden this week is kind of the opposite side of that, right? I think if you've done things the right way, if you have a healthy work environment, if people are happy, if people are feeling valued, when tough times hit, the response will be positive. If you haven't done things the right way, if you don't have a healthy work environment, if people aren't feeling valued, when tragedy strikes, it becomes very difficult for everyone to process those emotions and ugly bad things can happen, right? That's what I saw from that Knicks scene. Now, obviously, I'm talking about Jay Crowder being shoved into the, the courtside seats by Alfred Payton. I'm talking about Marcus Morris's response and his postgame comments that angered everyone where he's saying Jay Crowder has, you know, basically f- female tendencies and all this and, and calling him soft and, and this, that, and the other thing. The Knicks are an absolute disgrace from top to bottom. The fact that we're in a situation here where everyone is openly grieving having a hard time getting through this Kobe situation and they can't keep it together, you know, two or three days after his death and avoid, you know, a scene that's undoubtedly going to bring fines and suspensions. And it really seemed to me like an entire black eye on the entire league. It's devastating. Like, don't you guys know how to act, right? Like this is a time and place for everything. There's never a good time and place for that type of, uh, you know, unsportsmanlike behavior on the court, but certainly the time and place was not a few days after Kobe Bryant's death. You got to be better than that. And this is a situation where I hope this leads to Adam Silver calling Jim Dolan in a principal's office and just say, you know what, guys, we've put up with you for 20 years. You've got to be better than this. You're a prestige franchise in a huge market, major stage at Madison Square Garden. This is just unacceptable behavior. Not having uh, hot water in the visitors' locker room after the game also was uh, just a classic MSG touch. And uh, the sell the team chance that rained down at MSG uh, when James Dolan got up to leave his courtside seats were also powerful. And uh, there's a reason, you know, 
there's a re- <laughs> there's a reason why I went to the uh, Nets game instead. Uh, you know, there, obviously my wife was there, so that was probably number one, I should say. But uh, like any time that both teams are playing at the same time, I typically go to the Nets just because it's a more there's a more competent basketball product on the floor for sure, and then just everything about MSG is just not what you want and uh last night you just saw it and as you said ben the timing just like despicable like i I mean jake jay crowder should not have taken that corner three but do we really like you know what i've seen over the past week and every in games that I've, i've seen players helping other players up on other teams who have fallen over and i haven't really seen that in all the years i've watched the nba i've made like in the middle of a possession I've maybe seen it like, I don't even know, maybe five times. And in the past week, I've seen it like three or four. And for that to happen with uh, at the end of that game with the shove to the ground and then the fracas and then the, the like, if, if, okay, so even if that were to happen, like, just end it right there. For them to spill into the postgame conversation and just own and not, and like not apologize for what transpired was just like doubling down on stupidity. I, uh, I second everything that you're saying. It was a very embarrassing thing, and the timing just could not have been worse. Exactly. And, I mean, that's the thing. Like, they owe an apology to everybody, right? I mean, the whole league, all their partners, everything else for how they conducted themselves. And that's women. why I think— And, yes, of course, the women. No question about that. Uh, that's why I just kind of go back to this idea of, like— you know, if you have this toxic environment, it can come out in different ways. I understand the Knicks players are probably frustrated at Kobe's death too. There's probably some of those guys who didn't even want to take the court. I get those feelings, but uh, to have it spill out at that time, I don't think it was coincidental. And I think it just really highlights the awful state of that franchise and their very kind of premier role within the league. And it's rubbing off on everyone else, you know? I mean, to me, I understand finding the players for their behavior. If I was Adam Silver, I would consider finding the whole Knicks organization for how that went down. Um, it's just, you know, you talk about what's like the, the best interests of the game. Are you like damaging the credibility of the sport? That kind of stuff. I think it, it transcended up to that level. I'm not trying to be melodramatic or over the top here. I just think um, that can't stand, you know? And we've seen the Knicks time after time, flagrant fouls, flagrant twos this season. Uh, enough is enough, okay? And and I hope Adam Silver takes this one seriously, and we'll see what the punishment looks like. But um, I was just thoroughly disgusted by the whole scene. And on that bright note, Michael, we've reached the end <laughs> of another Open Floor podcast. Thank you for walking me through everything uh, in kind of a coast-to-coast manner here on this show. Guys, email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com next week we're going to have the all-star reactions your emails on the all-stars and everything else um we'll probably have a a little bit of discussion about the lakers first game which is going to take place on friday night against the portland trailblazers um you guys can follow michael on twitter and instagram at michael v as in victor pina you can follow me on instagram at ben.goliver i'm on twitter at ben goliver you guys can go to our page on apple Podcasts by searching for open floor that's two words when you find it scroll down it will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word hey michael until next week i will talk to you talk to you soon ben